Titus chapter 3, please. We're looking at the theme of grace. Second great word of the scripture. Last week, total depravity. This week, grace. What's that? A little more hopeful than last week. Absolutely. So take your Bibles with me, Titus chapter 3. Let me read the text first. We'll be in a few different texts this evening. God's word, Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 4, says this. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Let's pray. Father, as we look now to this text, it is the most absolutely delightful and wonderful truth that you have stooped to save us through your kindness and love, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, we are new creatures. Someday to be home with you forever. Thank you for your redemption. Thank you for all the riches and blessings of your grace. Father, open our minds and our hearts to understanding a little bit about grace and then Father, we seek to be men and women who are gracious, who respond to others like you have responded to us. Do this, Father, for your honor and glory. Amen. So to understand, really get to understand this text, I want to bring you back to this morning where we left off. So just bear with me as I do a brief review from the morning because it's, it's all in context and we have to hold to the context. So in in Titus chapter 3, Paul is telling Titus, get into the churches in Crete on that island and remind them something. Remind all the believers something. Remind them how they as Christians are to live in the world. Because how are we supposed to live in the body of Christ? He's already gone over that much with godly leadership, older men, younger men, older women, younger women. He's covered a lot of territory about how do we behave in church. But now in chapter 3, he's saying, You have a responsibility about the gospel when you go out to the community. So I'm talking Hermantown, Eskil, Cloquet, Saginaw, Twig, Duluth, Superior. We, this is our mission field. This is our area. There are four things that we are supposed to do. Number one, we're supposed to submit obediently to the governing authorities, which means we are to be the very best citizens of our country. So we submit obediently. Um, We're not... We're not trying to get around the law. We are obeying the law. People are not looking at us being mischievous or devious, trying to skirt around so we can um, get it it easier on our taxes or um, avoid a speed limit. Or I mean, the more people see us act like that, the the less they would want to be like they would want anything to do with Christ. So we are to submit obediently. 
Secondly, we are to serve eagerly. Verse 1 says to be ready for every good work. We need to be prepared and ready, not just to do good to one another, but to go out in the community and do good to the community. Picking up trash. I mean, whatever we can do to make a statement, we care about the people in our community. We care whether they go to heaven or hell. We need to be prepared, ready for action for every good work. The community that we live in needs to see us. They need to see Faith Baptist Church. That we're not just some isolated community group that's closed, but that we are out doing good to others. Third, verse 2, we are to speak evil of no man. No one. I don't care if they're a Hollywood star. I don't care if they're the worst person. We are just simply to speak evil of no one. That shouldn't be coming out of our mouth. Um, All of these characteristics come out of a proud, arrogant, selfish heart, right? Not submitting to authority, arrogant, proud self. Um, Not eager to serve, selfish, proud person. Speaking evil about others, proud, selfish person. So we are to speak evil to no one. We are to speak gently. And then the fourth thing was to show humility, to be peaceable, to be gentle, and to show all humility or perfect courteousness to all men, which means the people at the gas station that wait on you. They should not see some um, arrogant, quick-tempered, impatient person. They should see a kind, gentle Christ follower in line. Somebody at Super One or wherever you shop, the mall, um, parking space, parking spots, people driving. People should see in our driving Christ likeness. And that's probably the place I'm least Christ like. People don't know how to drive around here. I think I'm the only one to do. But, but seriously, the way people drive, I'm, and then Melissa's like, Brian, you don't know what they're going through that day. And I'm like, yeah, you're right, but they should know how to drive. You know, they're on the road. But still, we're to speak evil of no one, right? And we're to be perfectly courteous. Somebody waits on you and you're not given the perfect customer service. You return something, you don't get the best customer service. Imagine a missionary coming to Duluth. And if they came with the attitude of, well, I want my way, I want everything done, my my preferences and my timing. And if if not, I'm going to just yell and and chew up the person that's waiting on me. We would be like, you're never going to reach a soul coming here and doing that. Anybody who came as a missionary to Duluth would come because they absolutely loved the people here and they wanted these people to go to heaven, not hell. So when we have that attitude, all of a sudden we're not inconvenienced. It's a testimony for Christ. So those are the four things we are to do. And then remember in verse 3 that God is putting his finger on our heart saying, there's going to be some objections. When we are supposed to act that way out in the world, we would naturally respond with, but you don't know those people. You don't know the people I work with. You don't know the people at the, at the gas station. You don't know the people at the supermarket. You don't know what kind of crummy service I did have. You don't know the people. And then God would say, yes, I do. Here's what the people are, verse 3, because he says this, verse 3, for we ourselves, Paul says, for we ourselves, who's the we? You and I as believers. We ourselves were also, which means he's referring to the world. See, listen, everybody, at one one time, we were in the world just like the world is in the world. And here's the description of the people in the world. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, basically blind and ignorant. 
We should not be surprised when the world acts like the world because they are ignorant of the grace of God and the goodness of God. They don't know any better. You know, I look at some of the behavior of some people and I, and I begin to wonder, and then I realize, but they don't know Christ like I know Christ. At one time, I was like the blind, foolish, deceived individual, but I am no longer. Notice it says, for we ourselves were also once foolish. Not anymore, but we used to be. All right? Next, he says, we're described, we ourselves were also once serving various lusts and pleasures. We were enslaved to sin. But we're not anymore, but we used to be. Just like the world right now is enslaved to sin. They can't help it. They are trapped in sin, and they are living according to the flesh. Thirdly, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Those are all relationship destroyers, malice, envy, and hating. That's what the world does because that's all they know. They don't know the love and kindness of the Savior. So they're only going to live with malice, envy, and hate. But we were once like that, but God rescued us out of it, didn't he? So look at verse 4. But when the kindness, but, do you see the word but? I would circle it. I would highlight it. But when something happened, when I, when I was foolish, deceived, when I was disobedient, serving my various lusts and pleasures, full of malice and envy and hating and hating others, when I was like that, something happened on October 1st, 1993. The kindness and the love of God through Jesus Christ, my Lord, appeared to me. It came to me. Something happened. So verse 4 says, But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior toward man, appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration. He washed me. He washed me and cleansed me from all of those worldly blindness, slavery to sin, and, and destroying relationship attitudes and actions. So if I used to be like that and he rescued me out of it, why would we go to the world and treat them like we do? Why do we not act like Christ and bring the gospel and love them? Bring, not that we condone their sin and agree with their sin. Not at all. But we, we certainly need to treat them with respect and give them the gospel. You agree? That's our mission. And if God's kindness and love, love, love impacted me, then I need to bring that same kindness and love into the community. And they need to see that, and they need to hear it from my lips. All right, so that's our mission. So now, that's why this text is right here. Because God is saying, you once were like the world, but something happened. I'm going to give you four quick things about God's grace. Number one, God loves us. Okay, verse four. But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior toward man, appeared, God loves us. He didn't have to love us. There's nothing lovely about us. We were separated from him, weighed down with sin, but he loved us. And not only did he love us, it says the kindness and the love of God, our Savior toward man, appeared. Jesus Christ showed up on the scene, and I think when did his kindness and love really appear? Not when he was a babe in Bethlehem, although he, that was part of it. It was on the cross. It was his death on the cross. That's when the kindness and the love of God appeared. That, that a holy God in the flesh would take my sin upon himself. Do you want to talk about kindness? That is kindness. Kindness is taking all of my sin that, and all of the penalty that I deserve and taking it upon himself on the cross. There's nothing kind kinder than that. There's nothing more loving than that. 
Do you agree? I mean, that is life-changing. So how dare we get upset with a waitress who's serving us and our food is late or, our, or is cold or whatever. Or if somebody is in line and, and the checkout person's having a hard time, don't give them a hard time. Show them the kindness and the love of Christ that he showed us on the cross and he, uh, he gives to them as well. You agree? So God cares for us. When the kindness and the love of God, our Savior toward man appeared. Look at verse 5. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, God has changed us. God loves us, verse 4, without a doubt. But secondly, in verse 5, God has changed us. I am no longer the same person. I'm a new creation. How did it come about? So here's what we're going to take apart. Verse 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. His loving kindness demonstrated to me on the cross was not because of anything that I have done. That is the definition of grace. Grace is undeserved love. It is unearned love. There is no work that I have done. There's nothing that I could ever do where God would say, well, you deserve it. I owe it to you to come down and do this for you. There was nothing in me, as we saw last Sunday night, that merited God even giving me a second look. It was eternal death and hell, and that's all I deserved. Anything more than that is grace. So take your Bibles. We're going to talk about not by works of righteousness, but he says, according to his mercy, he saved us. He rescued us from the penalty, the power of sin, and ultimately the presence of sin. He saved us so fully, the penalty's gone, the power's broken, and ultimately the presence, no more. When we get to heaven, no more sin. No more sin inside me. No more sin around me. It is gone forever. Awesome. That's how he has saved us. But it's not by my works of righteousness. Take your Bibles. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Let's just walk through Ephesians 2 quickly, and we'll see God's grace in action here. Ephesians 2. And you, believers, right now, you believers. Ephesians 2 verse 1. He made alive who were Here's the bad news. You were dead in trespasses and sins. You were spiritually dead. You were born spiritually dead, separated from God. Verse 2, you were also enslaved to sin. So this is the bad news, verses 1, 2, and 3. Verse 1, you're spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. Verse 2, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. Remember what I just read in Titus 3? what What were we once characterized like the world is? We once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, spending our life with malice and envy, hating and hating others. That's we once walked that way according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan himself, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we, you and I used to do this, all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh. That was just normal, the lust of the flesh. Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, we were by nature children of wrath. All of God's anger deserved to be poured on me because that's, how I, that's my nature. And I'm just like the others in the world. Look at verse 4. But God. See, this is the major change. But God, who is rich in mercy limitless in his mercy. You know what mercy is? 
Mercy is not getting what we deserve. We, we deserve hell. Not getting it is mercy. Do you know what grace is? Grace is getting what we don't deserve, which is his righteousness and all the blessings that go with it. So grace and mercy are a little different. Here, God is rich in mercy. He would even spare us from a death in hell because, not because of us, but because of his great love. Look at that. Which, with which he loved us. Even, even when we were dead in trespasses, he loved us when there was nothing of value to be found in us. We were dead in trespasses. He, look at this, made us alive together with Christ. It's called regeneration. In Titus 3, verse 5, we were made alive through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Here, same thing. He made us alive together with Christ. And then as a parenthesis, by grace you have been saved. And then he goes on, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And you say, but I'm not sitting in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. No, but you will. It is so guaranteed. It's in the past tense. It is so guaranteed that you're going to get to heaven. And in, by the way, Ephesians 1.20 tells us that when Christ ascended, he, he rose from the dead, he ascended to the Father, he ascended to, to the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. So when we, see, when we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies, we are ruling and reigning with Christ. That is, is that grace? We don't deserve one thing except a lake of fire. And then he raises us up so we can sit with him. It's, I mean, it's one thing to let me in heaven and I could like wander the streets as a janitor. But it's another thing for him to say, come into my house and sit with me on my throne. That's grace. That in the ages to come, literally, age stacked upon age stacked upon age. And I think, in, I think this is in heaven. We're going to, like we sang with amazing grace, a million years, two million years in heaven. We're going to be sitting around two million years in heaven, and maybe Charlie, Samantha, and I will have just golfed a beautiful golf course in heaven, and after two million years, the Lord will say, all right, children, come over here. There is something about my grace that you don't know. And we're going to hear something more about the depth of his love for us. And we'll say, we've been in heaven two million years, and you're now telling us we're beginning to see a little bit. Can we, how long is it going to take us to learn about an infinite God? An infinite amount of time. We will never, listen, for as long as we're in heaven, we will never, ever, ever comprehend all that God is. Never, never, never. Can you believe it? And he cares about us to look upon us, to take our sin upon himself on the cross. So in, that in the ages to come, age after age after age, he might show, there it is, the exceeding riches of his grace, his boundless, limitless love towards his creatures in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Eternal life. Salvation is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. All right, one more. Let's go to Romans chapter 4. This. Oh, we don't, okay. I want to get to 2 Samuel 9. We've got to get there tonight. So let's go to Romans 4 quickly. 
the, the more I studied, the more I thought, but I want to say this, and I want to show this. And every page, you know what's hard about it? Grace is found on every page. It really is. God, God's grace is in the Garden of Eden. It's with Noah. It's throughout all of the Bible. Look at Romans 4 with me. Here's the question. All right, so somebody is born again. Somebody is saved. So where's the boasting? All right, that's back in chapter 3, verse 27. Where's the boasting? Listen, it is excluded. No one can boast. Here's why, chapter 4. What then shall we say? And what Paul's going to do is give to the Romans two Old Testament people as examples of God's grace. Abraham and David. So let's look at Abraham. What, What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? In other words, he was a good man. He was a faithful patriarch. He went, he left Ur of the Chaldees. He went to the promised land. I mean, I could name you good thing after good thing after good thing about Abraham. You all agree? I mean, who's going to talk bad about Abe? Nobody. He's a good patriarch. He followed after God. Verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. All right? So if, if somehow Abraham was found righteous by his good works, he could make a big boast about it. Verse 3, but what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. It was only trust, trusting in the Lord is how he received the righteousness of God. Verse 4, now to him who works, if you're going to try to work for your salvation, the wages are not counted as grace but as debt, because grace cannot be deserved or earned. If it can be deserved or earned, it is no longer grace. It is now a debt. And if Abraham gets to heaven by his own works, it's because God owed him and God was in debt. And God is not a debtor to anyone. God is the initiator in our salvation. He's not the debtor. So Abraham, you and I have nothing to boast before God regarding our salvation. It is all undeserved. It is all unearned by us. By the way, when you work at a job and they give you a paycheck, you don't say, oh, wow, look at this. It's a free gift. No, you say, I have earned this. I have merited this. I deserve it, and you have no right to hold it from me. It's not a gift. It's wages. It's earned. Grace? Not. If it's earned, it's no longer grace. Look at verse 5. But to him who does not work but believes on him, those who trust on him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Now he uses David. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. David is giving the righteousness of God apart from works. And why is David so happy about it? Here's why, everybody. David is the king of Israel. In the Mosaic Law... If you commit a willful sin, you cannot offer an animal sacrifice. There is no offering for a willful, premeditated sin. The only thing that you get is instant death. You get death by stoning. That's the Mosaic Law. David has premeditated many things. Adultery with Bathsheba. He then murdered Uriah the Hittite, which was one of his 30 mighty men, most likely then one of David's best friends. He murdered his best friend, Uriah, the mighty man. Um, Bathsheba's grandfather was Ahithophel. Ahithophel was David's most trusted counselor. So David sinned deliberately, premeditated, willfully, with adultery, with murder. He has now offended Bathsheba, Bathsheba's grandfather. He's offended the entire nation, and he's offended God. 
And because it's premeditated and willful, there's no sacrifice David could give that God would say, okay, it's covered. He couldn't do it. He deserves instant death. But do you know what God does? God gives grace. So David says, now do you see verse 6? Just as David also describes the blessedness. Why is it blessed? David deserves to die with no offering opportunity. And God says, I'll spare your life. I'll save you. Not only will I save you, but I'll bring you into my eternal kingdom. Isn't that? That's grace. Blessed are those, verse 7, whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. There is a group of people that God will not put onto their account their own sin. It is believers in Jesus, those who have received the undeserved love, the grace of God in Jesus Christ. If people don't have the grace of God in Jesus Christ, their sins are put on their account for all eternity in hell. That is scary. All right, let's go back to Titus chapter 3. And I have one more quick passage. That probably would take me half an hour if I spent time on it. But let's look at Titus 3. I want to walk through this again. We once were like the world, foolish, disobedient, deceived. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, it's not by our own work, but according to his mercy, he saved us. What did he do? Through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. These are all passive words. He washed us. We didn't wash ourselves. We didn't seek after him. We didn't wash ourselves. He sought after us. He washed us, and he's renewing us through the Holy Spirit. We're not doing it. He's doing it to us. Do you see God's grace? It's all of God and none of us. And then he goes on. Whom he poured out, the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus poured out on us, abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, or through the Father poured out on us, abundantly. It literally means a huge quantity overflowing quantity of the Holy Spirit flooding our lives to empower and to guide and to direct, to regenerate, to seal us. All of these ministries of the Holy Spirit given abundantly. Verse 7, that having been justified by his grace, we are declared righteous by the undeserved love that Jesus demonstrated on the cross. We Listen to verse 7. We should become heirs. Listen, he doesn't just make us citizens of his kingdom. We are joint heirs with Christ. And how much does Christ rule over? Everything. And you and I are with him in the ruling of all things. That is, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 says that Jesus Christ, who was rich, became poor, that we, through his poverty, might be made rich. Jesus, he left everything and became a bondservant of the Father, and died on the cross for us, that we who are in absolute beggarly poverty might be made rich. Now, how rich has he made us? Here is the blessing. We have become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We have an inheritance awaiting us that is beyond our imagination. Last text. I realize it's just a few minutes to seven. Go with me to 2 Samuel 9. I'll do this as quick as I can. 2 Samuel chapter 9. Read this on your own this week, but it is the most beautiful story of grace. I thought through the scriptures 
I don't want to just give a definition. I want to give a picture. And we have the picture of the Lord on the cross, of course. But I thought, let's get another picture of God's grace. 2 Samuel chapter 9. Can I just walk through this real quick with you? 2 Samuel 9, it's the story of David and Mephibosheth. It says in verse 1, Now David said, listen, David is the initiator in the kindness to Mephibosheth. Just like God is the initiator in, in our salvation. He's the, God is the one who appeared in the garden saying, Adam, where are you? Adam, Adam was running for his life from God, and, and God is seeking Adam. Jesus says in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Grace, God's grace, he is the initiator of it all. We're not seeking it. He's coming after us and chasing us down. Now David said, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul? So now, number one, David took the initiative. Number two, David seeks out not a friend, but an enemy to be kind to. David says, is there anyone still left in the house of Saul? And listen, Jesus Christ came to this earth to rescue us who were rebels and enemies of God. That is God's grace. That I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. David's not doing it except for Jonathan's sake. God the Father's saving us for the sake of Jesus Christ, his son. Verse 2, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? He said, At your service. Verse 3, then the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God, the grace of God? By the way, anybody that David shows kindness to in, in Saul's house, do they deserve it? Nope. Have they earned it? Nope, they are enemies. They are bitter enemies. But David still wants to do it. And then Ziba said to the king, the end of verse 3, there is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. Okay, let me just share real quick. In 1 Samuel 20, am I, are you guys with me? In 1 Samuel 20, David and Jonathan made a covenant. And Jonathan said, David, if my dad seeks to do you harm, I will, come and get, I will come and give word to you so you may run for your life and find safety. I will have your life spared if my dad wants to kill you. But do one thing, David. Remember the, your, the kindness of God to me. And if I should die, show the kindness of God to my family. Because I know every one of your enemies are going to be destroyed, David. God's going to do that for you. But give grace to my family. So now, when was the covenant made? way before Mephibosheth was born. The covenant that God made to give us grace happened before the foundations of the world. God knew he would create us and we would rebel. He knew Jesus would go to the cross and pay for our sins and rescue us. It was all done ahead of time, just like this. So the king said, where is he? Verse 4, Ziba said to the king, indeed, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. Lodabar means desert land, no pasture. No grazing, just complete desert. And you and I, in our sin, we are in a desert. We are all by ourselves, alienated from God. Verse 5, then King David sent, notice, again, who's doing the bringing about? David is, just like God does for us. Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar. Just like on October 1st, God the Father scooped down and rescued me from this world and took me out of the, the kingdom of darkness. 
God brought me out, just like he brought, David brought Mephibosheth out. Verse 6, now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. That's the right attitude. It humbles us. It humbles us to know that we are enemies of God, and he has done everything to seek us out and to rescue us and to pay for our sin. How humbling. Then David said, Mephibosheth, do you like that? I don't think David had ever met this boy. And now he calls him by name, just like Jesus is our shepherd and he knows all of his sheep by name. And Mephibosheth answered, here is your servant. All right, here's the end. Listen to this, verse 7. So David said to him, do not fear. There's no rebuke. There's no anger. He simply says, do not be afraid. For I will surely show you. What does that mean? I will surely show you. It means a guarantee. David says, Mephibosheth, you are, the, you are my enemy. Your house is my, is my house's enemy. And you deserve to die. But I'm going to rescue from that place of death. And I'm going to guarantee, show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake. And will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather. And you shall eat bread at my table. How long? Continually. Mephibosheth gets life. He gets peace, he gets fellowship, and he gets provision all at the king's table. And how much does Mephibosheth deserve? Zero. How much has he earned? Zero. He was an enemy, and now he's a friend seated at the table of the king. Do you see the, the greatness of grace? God the Father stooped down, Jesus Christ saved us, and then he rescued us, and he seats us at his table and provides for us for all eternity. Why? There's nothing lovely about us. It doesn't matter. It's God's grace. It's who he is. So then the king called Aziba. Oh, verse 8. Then he bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? Who am I? Do you ever just ask God that? Who am I? I mean, you who flung out all the stars and can build galaxies by the word of your mouth, who am I? I mean, I want to serve the Lord, but I don't always do it. And I want to have a right attitude, and I don't always do it. And, but why, Lord, why? The king called Aziba, Saul's servant, and said, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to all his house. You, therefore, and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him. You shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord, the king, has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table, look at this, like one of the king's sons. God the Father is going to seat us at the table and say, Here is Jesus, my son, and you are also my sons and daughters. That is great. That is grace. Mephibosheth, verse 12, had a young son whose name was Micha, and all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. Listen to this. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both of his feet. He was unable to do anything. He couldn't do any work. There's nothing he could do. He was lame in both feet. How did his lameness come about? His nursemaid, when he was a baby, 
ran with him to save his life, she dropped him. It was in a fall that he went lame. And it was in the fall of Adam and Eve that we went lame. We are unable. And yet, by God's grace, not of works of our righteousness of our own that we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, that we might be made joint heirs with Christ in the hope of eternal life. That's what it's all about. Okay, quickly. We know what we once were like, right? Foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts, full of spending our lives in malice and envy and hating others and hating other things. But God, but God changed us. We're no longer like that, right? We're new, cre- there we're new creatures in Christ. So why would we ever go and treat somebody ungracious? If God has been so gracious to us, it's like in Matthew 18, the king who forgave a debt, a gigantic debt to the servant, and the servant turns around and won't forgive a tiny debt. He's forgiven a massive debt he could never pay back, but he holds against one of his fellow servants a small debt. How could we experience the love and kindness of the grace of God and then treat some other people so cruelly and hard? Shouldn't happen, should it? We should respond to others like Jesus Christ has responded to us. If we do that, do you know what the world would see? They would see Christ followers. Remember in Antioch, Acts chapter 11, verse 26? After a year of assembling together and learning about the grace of God, they first were called Christians in Antioch. It was the first time the pagan people looked around and said, those people act, talk, and speak to us like Jesus, the carpenter of Nazareth. Wouldn't it be great if the people in our community would take a second look and say, wow, they are acting and responding like Jesus, the, 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 um, Jesus, the Son of God, the carpenter of Nazareth. That's what we want, right? And the only reason we can do it is because God has changed us through, through his grace. Father, this is just a little excerpt of grace out of a gigantic plethora of scriptures on grace. But, but help us, listen, Father, we really want to be gracious men and women. We want to treat others with loving kindness. Not that we agree with their sin and not that we even tolerate it because you're a, a holy God and you don't agree with the sin of the world. But you have taught us in Titus 3 how we should think about the world and how we should interact with the world. Submitting obediently, serving eagerly, speaking evil to no man, and showing perfect courteousness to all people. Because we once were like them. We want them to be like us. We want them to be like Christ. So this week, give us opportunities to explain God's grace to somebody, and may they respond by faith. Thank you for our church family and these times in the scriptures to study the greatest truths and doctrines that have ever been recorded. We just love you, Father, so much. In Jesus' name, amen.